Well, it's good to be home again, folks. I tell you, it brings back good memories, the Frederick Church. And when I drive by from time to time, I always look and see this beautiful building that God has erected here to be a witness to the whole community and the whole state of Maryland and many other states as they drive by on 70. How you get to it is another situation. (laughs) And this morning I was very proud of myself testing if I had Alzheimer's or not, but I drove right to it. And that's a good memory, Walter. (laughs) And so it's good to be here with my wife. And I just thank the Lord that we can be together and worship him on his holy day and to take the Bible and see what God has in mind for you and what he has in mind for me. Two weeks ago, my little girl... Well, not too little. She's 40 years old. (laughs) My girl, my daughter, from McLean, Virginia, called me up and she said very seriously on the phone, Dad, go to Safeway immediately and buy all the dried food that you can get. I said, why? Well, Dad... This is the end. That's when the stock market went down. And her husband, Mike, is an investment banker for AOL in McLean. And she was serious. And she said, Dad, number two, go to the bank and see if you can withdraw at least $1,000. Take it home and put it under your bed. Because you won't be able to buy or sell. You won't be able to get any food. The supermarkets will be closed. Everything will come to a halt, Dad. And then she said, Dad, is this the end? And very seriously, I still am, folks, we are living in a time that is fraught with doubt. And I said, Cookie, it could either be the beginning of the end, or it could be a major, another major wake-up call for you and me to be ready. Jesus. Either way, we are living in a time. Then she said, well, Dad, how are we going to make it? How are we really going to make it here? I said, well, sugar, go to Matthew, the sixth chapter. Take your Bible, folks. Matthew 6. And this Bible that we have over here is going to be opened and read more than ever in our lives. Right now, as we face the situation, where can we go to? 
Where can we find what God is going to do for us? It's right over here. And so I said, Sugar, go to Matthew, the sixth chapter. And I want you to read the 25th verse, Matthew 6, verse 25. And she said, well, Dad, I know that those verses, I read them in Academy. I I said, let's read it again. Therefore, Jesus says, I say unto you, Danita, I say unto you, Neville, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus says, look, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? Which of you, my warring, can add, a, can add one cubit to his stature? I used to worry about that. I wanted to be six foot. I used to do a lot of worrying about it. I even put newspaper in my noose in my shoes to look a little taller. We can do nothing about our stature, and we all know that. So Jesus says, so why do you worry, in verse 28, about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, Neville, church, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles, those that do not accept Jesus or know Jesus, After all these things, the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added. And then verse 34, Jesus says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There was silence on the phone. And then the question, Dad, seriously, when is Jesus coming? Well, sugar... Read Mark, the 13th chapter. Get your Bibles, folks. Mark 13. Verse 32. Verse 33. 
But of that day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven. You would think at least the angels would know. Nor who? Nor the Son. You mean Jesus doesn't even know? That's what your Bible says. But who only knows? Only the Father. God's top secret. We say to ourselves, why is it such a secret? Why? It's not fair. How can we get ready? Why don't you tell us? But you know, God does not leave us in the dark. And God gives you and me, he gives us clues. He gives us signs. And here they all given to us. And my brother and my sister, the last few weeks, again, are clues, are signs that Jesus is coming. God gives us expectations. What does God expect of you and me this morning in light of the times we are living in? What are your expectations this morning sitting here in this church? What do you expect? We all have expectations. What do you expect of me? What do you expect of the sermon? What are you expecting here this morning? What are God's expectations of our church in Frederick? What are they in the times that we are living? What are God's expectations of you and me sitting here I'll tell you what it is. God expects you and I to be joyful. Well, Brother Harkham, how in the world can I be joyful when I look at my bank account? How in the world can I be joyful when I've lost my job? How in the world can I be joyful when the stock market goes all the way down? How can we be joyful? Good question. We'll go to James, the first chapter. James, the first chapter, and I want you to read there in the second verse, James 1, verse 2. And James says there, my brethren, my brother, my sister, my brethren, count it all joy, be joyful, count it all joy when? When you fall into various trials. Oh, my. The tribulation that we are going through now, the Bible says, be joyful. Praise the Lord. Be joyful as Christians in the times that we are living. Paul would have given his eye teeth to live where, right now where we are living. He would love to have been here. He would have been praising the Lord. If he could praise the Lord in prison and singing hymns, surely he'd be singing hymns and praising God right here with us. If you ever want to have joy, 
Now there's a chorus. When I was in Pathfinders many moons ago, there was a chorus we used to sing. If you want joy, you remember that? Some of you may. If you want joy, real joy, wonderful joy, then what? Let Jesus come into your heart. Remember that? Well, we need to sing it again. Teach you to sing it. If you want joy, real joy, an inner attitude of contentment, serenity, and fulfillment, if you want to be excited about life, let me suggest four things for joy. Number one, sense the glory of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you to be sensitive to the presence, to the leadings, and counsel of God. Sense the aura of God each day in your life. Number two, follow the word of God. It's so simple, yet people miss it altogether. Following the word of God, that is, if God says it in his word, then we ought to do it. Number three, to be united, united in the will of God. The Lord is looking for unity in the body of Christ, the church. You know, Ellen White writes this profound statement here. If God's professed people, I'm looking at God's professed people right here. If God's professed people would receive the light as it shines upon them from his word, they would reach that unity which Christ prayed, that which the apostle describes, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. God is always looking for that. This is what Matthew 28 is instructing us to do. Go into all the world, make disciples, teaching, baptizing, get up, get out and do something for God. If you do those four things, you will experience joy. What about the church? What are God's expectations of our church right now in 2008? What are they? God makes it clear in his word. God gives us the answer. He gives us the answer in three letters. The letter that Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, the letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae, and then the letter that he wrote to Thessalonica. Three letters that Paul wrote gives us what God expects of our church right now. Ephesians 1 verse 15. Turn to Ephesians 1 15. God is looking for something in the body of Christ at Ephesus. At the beginning of the letter, we find that Paul is praying a prayer of thanksgiving. It's rather a long prayer if you read the first chapter. It's 14 verses of the prayer that Paul is praying. And as he prays for the church, he prays that the church will experience three things. What are they? Ephesians 1 verse 15. You know, whenever you read the book of Ephesians, you should know that it's a summary of all 
the other letters of Paul put together in Ephesians. Now, the focus of this letter in Ephesians, however, is on the body of Christ, the church. Ephesians 1.15, let's read. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, that's a key word, faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, Another key word for all saints. Do not cease to give thanks, making mention of you in my prayers. And then verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope. Another key word of his calling. So Paul is thankful for the church in Ephesus. Whenever you read Paul... You will recognize his writings are divided into two sections. The first part is always doctrine. The second part is the practical application of doctrine. Two, two subjects that Paul always brings into his writings. Remember those two landmarks. The first part, doctrine. The second, on duty. Doctrine is the teaching of the church. Duty is the practical application of the doctrine. And so in the prayer that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, which is the body, Christ is the head, he focuses on the body, the church. Therefore, verse 15 again, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. So Paul is thankful to the church of Ephesus because they possess what? Faith. And so the first thing that the church should always have is what? Faith. And what is faith? Trust in God. Trust in his word. Trust in his promises. If you trust God, if you trust his promises, that there is faith. Now let's continue. Verse 15. Therefore also I have, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your For who? Interesting that he puts the wording in there for all the saints. So he thanks them. He says the second quality he's looking for is love. And then going on down elsewhere, we see in verse 18, go to verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know that what is the hope. Of his calling. So here, folks, we have three distinctive qualifications of the church of Ephesus. Faith, love, and hope. Now, if that's true for the church of Ephesus, if Christ came this morning to inspect our church in Frederick, what do you think? he would be coming looking for. Verse 15, therefore, let's go back to it. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Why love for all the saints? Why not the world? Why is Paul zeroing in that our love should be for the saints in the church? Why is it that... We have to love each other in the church. 
Why is it so important for God's church to love each other? You know, it's, un- it's hard to understand why so many times some preachers have to keep preaching on love to some of our congregations. If the truth were told, we get doctrines a lot faster than we do practical applications. In other words, we do better in the classroom than we do in the laboratory. It seems like being a child of God, blood-washed, Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, prophecy-declaring, Holy Spirit-filled, born-again believers, that the last thing we have to do to spend time to determine on how to love one another. Some Christians have a tough time loving and being lovable. Loving God and loving others is hard work. However hard it is at times, it's still the way that God expects his church to live. Like it or not, his way is the way of love. Now, when I love, when I love my brother, and I tell you folks, that doesn't mean that we have to sit like robots in our pews and not enter any kind of discussion or disagreement or any kind of discussion. We disagree while humans, we have minds. This doesn't mean that we just sit and look at each other and say, I love you. In order for me to practice that love for the saints of the church, there are three things. I've got to learn to be flexible. I've got to learn to be tolerant. I've got to learn to be forgiving. And so Paul said to Ephesians, I didn't just hear about your faith, but I heard of your love for the saints. To dwell with saints above, oh, that would be glory. To dwell with saints below, well, that's another story. So the church has to have faith. It has to have love. It has to have hope. And Paul prayed for faith, hope, and love. Well, let's go to another church, the other one, in Colossae. In Colossians 1, it's a beautiful passage here in Colossians 1. And every pastor ought to pray this passage in Colossians 1. You see, Ephesians was a book that speaks of the head, but dealt with the body of Christ, you and me. Colossians, on the other hand, speaks of the body, but focuses on the head. That is Christ is the head of the church. And that is why when you read Ephesians and Colossians, they sound so much alike. Remember I said earlier, when reading and studying Paul, the first half is doctrine. The second half is application. You know, doctrines are things like inspiration, revelation, salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, Now, whether we want to hear those messages or not, the church that does not feed itself on those things will just waste away. You've got to have milk and meat. 
And the pastor who does not provide that kind of nourishment is like a mother who lets her children eat junk food three times a day. Well, we are in Colossians 1, 3 to 5, verse 3. Let's go back to the Bible. Colossians 1, got your Bible? Verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He prays again. Since we heard in verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the which he have to all the saints, verse 5, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof he heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now, what qualities is Paul looking for in the church of Colossae? Faith, love, hope. Now, folks, you know, Walter, you don't have to be a systematic theologian to get the point. And you don't have to be a New Testament scholar, Barbara, in order to figure this out. You read between the lines. If the first thing that Paul does is to pray for the church at Ephesus and he draws our attention to faith in Jesus, the love for the saints, and the hope of his glory, it would seem that these are the quantities that he would want in our church over here. And the church in Colossae, he appraises them and he thanks them for those three qualities. Well, I'm almost through with this lesson. One more church. One more church. I said three letters. The other one, Thessalonians. One verses two to three. And in this letter to the to Thessalonica, Paul looks for something in the church. I wonder what he's looking for. Well, let's look at the prayer, you see. In verse two, he says, We give thanks to God always for you. Sounds just very much like Paul. He's praying again for the church. He's giving thanks to God. And then in verse three, remembering church. Without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. What is the hope? What is the hope that Paul talks about? What is the hope? Throughout the New Testament, there is a heavy emphasis on the blessed hope. Paul is always directing his readers to the blessed hope, the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have this hope that burns within our hearts. Hope in the coming of the Lord. We have this hope that God alone imparts. We believe the time is here. When the nations far and near shall awake and shout and sing. Hallelujah. Christ is King.
We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. Church, what are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? Hoping for times will get better? Hoping for the stock market to go up? Hoping that your retirement fund will look good? What are you hoping for right now this morning? What are your expectations of God this morning? You get up every morning expecting God to do great things. I want to leave you, I want to leave you with a story that happened a few summers ago, well, quite a few summer, uh, summers ago in 1992 in Chicago. That Windy City, I've been there a few times, Chicago. My son lived there. It was a girl and her father that were out enjoying a very peaceful, warm, sunny afternoon on Lake Michigan, out sailing. She had her little pretty red uh, frock on. Father was dressed in his white shirt, shorts, white cap, out sailing there on Lake Michigan. And he had been complaining about everything, about being a mother to her and a father. And she was his only daughter. And tragically, the water came pouring through a hole in the bottom of that boat. And in minutes, the boat sunk to the bottom of that lake in Michigan. Now, he could swim, but his daughter couldn't swim. The problem was that he had had heart surgery. And with his weak heart, there's no way that he could swim the quarter mile back to the beach and tow his daughter with him. And so he said, Honey, do you remember how I taught you to float? She said, Yes, Dad. And he said, well, hon, turn on your back and float. Daddy, I will, I will float. Then he said, honey, daddy is going to get help. And I'm coming back for you. And he swam that quarter of a mile in pain, weak. It took him a long time to get to the beach at 55th Street. And when he got there, there were no boats. And so he thumbed a ride down to the 12th Street, to the Navy Pier. At the Navy Pier, he got a Coast Guard boat, heard his story. And by the time they got back to 55th Street, over an, an hour and a half had elapsed. There was no sign of his daughter. And so the boat started making wider and wider circles. And then the sun started going down. And the Coast Guard wanted to stop. But the man kept making them go wider and wider until they'd gone almost four miles out into the lake. And then... As the sun was setting, 
he begged, please, can we take one more sweep? They said, fine. But they knew it was all in vain. And when they took that last sweep, they saw a little red dress bobbing in the water. 400 yards from the boat. And knowing that she was dead, they tried their best and determined to keep the father in the boat because he just wanted to jump out and swim out. And they said, sir, stay in the boat. We're going to get her. And they pulled the throttle, went as fast as they could to his daughter. And instead of finding her dead, that they had assumed she would be, when they got about 20 yards from her, they found her floating on the water and singing, God will take care of you, that she had learnt at her, at her school. And they said, honey, how could you last that long? She said, well, it was easy. My daddy said he was coming back for me. My daddy never breaks his promises. We have a father who is coming back for us. He never breaks his promises. Father in heaven, we thank you for the times we are living in. We thank you for the letters that Paul has given to this church. Lord, to have faith, to have hope, to have love. And Father, we pray, keep us together, striving, clinging to your promises. And soon, we will see our Jesus in the clouds, coming to take us home, resurrecting our friends, our loved ones, our mothers, our fathers, sleeping in the grave, calling them back to life, and then going heavenward to live forever. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Amen.